1, Acts chapter 1 is our text where we're going to be for the next few weeks actually. So after a one-week hiatus, we're back in our series that we've titled A Mission-Focused Church, as you remember. And so we're going to be looking at this particular text for a few weeks, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. But this morning we're going to focus in on the opening three verses of this wonderful passage. If I were to ask you, what are your core convictions, what would you answer? What are those beliefs, those convictions that fuel you? What are those convictions that drive you, that motivate you, that move you to action? What are those? What would you answer? And let me ask you a follow-up question as you think about that. Would any of those core convictions have anything to do with Christ? As you think about your resources and the way that you use your resources, your time, your energy, your priorities, how you set up your week and your every day, would Jesus have anything to do with the way that you are living? And would Jesus be related in any way, shape, or form to your core convictions? Does your understanding of Christ and who He is dictate the way that you live your life and thus your convictions? You know, a few years ago, I came across an article with some of the most popular opinions about Jesus out there. The article made the point that no person in the history of mankind has been more controversial than Jesus. More ink has been spilt writing about Christ. More literature, more songs have been written about Jesus than any other person in human history. He's the object of the most tension and hostility and opposition than any other person in human history. The writer went on to quote some of the most popular opinions about Jesus over the years. For example, one historian wrote this, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Another scholarly historian wrote this, As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by His effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. One atheist wrote this, Despite our efforts to keep Him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and He left through a door marked no exit. In other words, there is no escape, no way to escape the profound impact that Jesus has made on human history, brethren. And so there's no way to escape also the fact that given His claims, given Jesus' self-claims, who He claimed to be, we have to reckon with Him as people. Concerning Jesus' claims, listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. A man like Jesus, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is making the point that given Jesus' claims, His words and His works, we only have two choices. We either embrace Jesus and submit our lives to Him, He is boss, or we reject Him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral position. There is no, you know, I like that guy. He was really nice. He was so sweet and kind. He was such a profound, moralistic teacher. But I'm not going to say he's boss of my life. There is no neutral that way. You must make your choice. That's Lewis's point. Now for all the popular opinions about Jesus, even the the positive ones, we must be reminded this morning, brethren, that Jesus is far greater far more majestic, far more superior, far more exalted than any, uh, anyone can even imagine. Amen? We know this if you have spiritual eyes to see. And as Christians, we don't allow the popular opinions of our culture to, to dictate, to define for us who Jesus is. We simply need to look at the Bible and read what the Bible says concerning Christ. For instance... In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, we read this that God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has given Christ the highest place of prominence, He is Lord. Who is this Jesus? We went through a whole study last year as your, your pastors and elders worked through Colossians with you. Remember this? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, a, He is preeminent. For by Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Could it be any more clear? He is the preeminent one. He is supreme Lord of the universe. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says that God Himself manifested His his power in that He raised Christ from the dead. And listen to this. He seated Jesus at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in He, God the Father, put all things in subjection under His, Christ's feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of of Him who fills all in all. This is Christ. This is our Savior, our Redeemer. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter preaches that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. 
Lord, meaning essentially that He's boss if we were to put a contemporary title on Him. He's Lord. He's boss. And the fact that He's, he's Christ means that He is King. No one in the entire universe can claim that, brethren. No one can. And so you see, Jesus is far greater, far more superior, far more majestic than anything anyone can ever say, even us as believers. You ask, what's the pertinence in all of this, Pastor Kempis? Here's the pertinence. That if Jesus is supreme Lord of the church, then shouldn't it follow that He should have the final say as to what His church is to be about? Doesn't it follow, brethren, that if Christ is this magnanimous and He's this majestic and He's this great and so supreme and preeminent, shouldn't He have final say as to what our focus should be upon? And the answer, of course, is yes. You know what's fun about all of this? Is that we don't need to be confused about what Jesus wants from us. We see it here in Acts chapter 1, verses 1-11. through A key text for us here in this period of transition in progressive revelation in God's Word. And this is why in the next three to four weeks, this is where we're going to camp out here. Because I want us to be reminded of our crystal clear purpose. We've talked about the right perspective that we need to have as a mission-focused church. Now we're going to talk about our our purpose, which is clearly defined here in Acts chapter 1. These are the final days and the final words of Christ prior to His ascension. Jesus is going to to give some authoritative orders here to His disciples, but by extension, brethren, to us who are part of the church now, part of the redeemed, those who have been called out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of of Christ. And so as we look at this powerful passage, we're going to see that we have a mission to accomplish accomplish as, as believers. But if we're going to do that, we need to be motivated by certain unwavering core convictions. Certain unwavering core convictions. These convictions really become the, the fuel that energize our sense of mission here on earth. Convictions are, are beliefs. Things that you believe in that drive you to action, right? Those are, these are beliefs that are unchanging regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of whether things are easy or tough in life. They are unchanging things. Convictions are beliefs that that shape your priorities, that shape your goals, that shape your time, that shape the use of your resources. Convictions are those beliefs and values that you're willing, ready for this, to die for if need be. You say, you're being kind of dramatic there. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because there might come a time in this country, brethren, very soon in the next few years or maybe decades, who knows, maybe our children or our grandchildren will experience this if they're following after Jesus. They might have to die for their faith in this country. But then again, it wouldn't be the first or last time, right? As many of our brethren for centuries have been giving their lives for the sake of the Gospel, even in the present they are doing that and into the future. Maybe that's going to happen in America very soon in the future. So you need to know what your convictions are. And you need to be motivated by certain convictions if you're going to be faithful to what God has called you to and if we're going to be faithful collectively as a church to what God has called us to here in our region in particular. 
Now, there are a number of convictions that we can talk about, but I really want to just focus on two this morning, okay? Two convictions here. First of all, we need to be convinced of our purpose. We need to be convinced of our purpose. Do you know, Christian, why you are here? Do you know why you're here? If I were to ask you that, really, what would you answer? What would you answer? I think the answer is very clear in God's Word as to why we are, we sh- we are here as believers. But I think oftentimes if we look at our lives and the way that we use our time and resources and where our energies go, I think we would give people a very confusing message about why we are here as believers. And so we need to look at God's Word. Look at this in verse 1. Luke writes, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. You're going to note there in verse 1 that Luke wrote Acts to a man named Theophilus. You see that? Theophilus means literally a lover of God. A lover of God. And while names don't always represent how a person lives, most likely Theophilus was a fellow believer. He was a man who was obviously interested in Jesus because Luke, his friend, is writing to him in particular to talk to him about Jesus' person and Jesus' works. Jesus' words and Jesus' miracles. Theophilus was also a high-ranking Roman official. Why, how do we know this? Because in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. That was a way of ascribing honor and respect to someone of political prominence. But on a personal level, Theophilus was evidently a good friend of Luke. In fact, Luke has already written to Theophilus previously, right? We know this because in verse 1, Luke refers to his first account. The first account I composed, Theophilus. That first account is a reference to the Gospel of of Luke. And of course, the the central concern of Luke's Gospel, according to verse 1, was centered on all that Jesus began to do and teach. It was focused on Jesus' words and Jesus' works. And so as Luke writes, he's saying, I've written my first volume focused on the humble incarnation of Christ from His birth all the way to His ascension. But listen, His humble incarnation was only the beginning. All that Jesus began to do and teach, He says. In other words, the implication, brethren, is this. There is still work to do. Luke's first account, His Gospel was the beginning, but there is a continuation now of Jesus' Word and works on earth. And the key question that I have for us this morning and the challenge that I would have for us is this. Who is to carry out phase two of Jesus' words and work? Who is to carry this out? After all, Jesus is no longer visibly, physically amongst us, right? But the answer is the church is to do this. The church is to do this. First, His apostles, right? That's the first direct application here in our passage. Some 2,000 years ago, the apostles were instructed here in Acts chapter 1 and in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. But then the followers of Jesus who were alive during this time, in this transition period of time in progressive revelation, when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. But then by extension, 
as you see the book of Acts unfold, right, any and all future believers have now a commission to fulfill. We have been left here, we who are the church, to continue, brethren, the unfinished work of Christ on earth. You say, Pastor Kemp is unfinished? Be careful now. Jesus said on the cross that His work was finished, didn't He? Yes, He did. Preach it. He did finish. His redemptive work is finished, right? He said that. But His mission work on earth, that His name be proclaimed to the nation so that more and more sinners would be saved and added to that wonderful heavenly choir, that mission work is unfinished, brethren. This wonderful mission of telling, calling sinners to repentance that they could be a part of a, of a future kingdom when there is no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering and death, where we will be with Christ if we put our trust in Him. Our mission is to tell people about this message, this good news concerning the person and the work of Christ. And so mark it. There is still work to be done. And this is where the church comes in. This is where you and I come in. The book of Acts is volume 2 of Luke's writings. And it's a continuation of Jesus' mission now through this beautiful living organism called the church. We who are believers. What a privilege. And so let me ask you, do you believe this by conviction? Is the conviction of your heart that you're here for the purpose of continuing Christ's work here on earth, and nothing will deter you from that. And that everything in your life, whatever God has given you, whatever context you find yourself, context of influence, you want to leverage that particular context for the purpose of being about Jesus and His kingdom. Is that how you're living your life? Let me cut to the chase and dig a bit deeper, okay? Do you live by the conviction that Christ is presently working in the here and now? Even in the midst of the wickedness that you see around in society. Do you believe that Jesus is working in the here and now? That He's saving people by His Spirit? That He's restoring people? That He's healing broken lives? That He's delivering people from destructive sins? That He's building His kingdom? That He's helping and encouraging and moving people towards faith in Him by His Spirit. Do you believe this? Listen, my conviction is that Christ is alive and well. That He's presently working. However, He is no longer doing this physically amongst us. Now Jesus is doing His work through us in the power of the Spirit by the guidance of His Holy Word. Amen? And through the proclamation of the Gospel of Christ. And people believing in that message and embracing Christ as Lord and Savior. Why do you think our family is here? Because I believe this by conviction. Isn't that why we, we love the, the great church history uh, missionaries, our great heroes of the, of the faith? Why do we love those people? Why do we think about Adoniram Judson and William Carey and Amy Carmichael and people like that and William Tyndale, people who gave their lives and laid down their lives and were beheaded for the sake of the Gospel. Many, many saints who we don't even know about, but one day we're going to meet in heaven. What is it about those people that, that, we, that cause us to, to be inspired? I'll tell you what, that they made choices, brethren. They made choices that it weren't for, if it weren't for the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't make sense. 
It was the conviction of their heart that they were here for a purpose, and that purpose was the kingdom of Christ. Is that your conviction this morning? Is that how you're living? I want you to know that whether you realize it or not, if you're a believer, you're here for a purpose. What is this purpose? It's not brother or sister, to simply pursue a career and a job, though that's a a noble thing. Listen to me, your job and your career in this world is your side gig that allows you to be able to serve Christ through any means. Amen? That's your side gig. Jesus and the church aren't like sprinkled on on the main things of your life, your job and your career, and you sprinkle a little Jesus and a little church in there. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus and the church are the center and the circumference of everything. And your job is your side gig that allows you to be able to provide for yourself, for your family faithfully, so that you can continue to be a witness there and a witness in every other context for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. Think about that. You're not here simply to obtain a, a home or property or to retire. These are not wrong or evil things in and of themselves, right? But if you are here and you're retired, you need to realize that you have now more time to serve Jesus. Listen to me, if you're retired, This is not the time for you to die and then roll off into eternity. No, 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 no. You are in the prime of your life. You have so much to give. You can be discipling younger people. You can be investing men into younger men. Ladies, you can be investing into the younger women of this church. If you are retired, you're not done. You're in the prime of your life. You're here for Christ and for His kingdom. You're not here to just have a nice family, though certainly God wants us to be faithful there and enjoy our families. We need to serve Christ together with our families. Not commit the sin of familyolatry, right? Idolizing our families and not serving Jesus with our families. Christian, you're here for a purpose. And that purpose consists of advancing Christ's kingdom through any means possible, raising a family, being salt and light in your neighborhood and your job, loving and serving others in the context of the church life. If Eastridge were to come off the the map and we were to cease to exist as an entity physically here, would the community around us or the Pacific Northwest even notice? Would they even notice? I'm not talking about being relevant in the secular woke social justice kind of a way, okay? I reject all of that. It's about the gospel and living out the implications of the gospel for all of those areas in society. I'm talking about having a gospel-centered impact here in this Pacific Northwest. Would anybody notice if we were gone? Obviously, believers, we would go to other churches, but would this collective entity, if it were off of this physical property here, would anybody notice, brethren? Are we making an impact? If you really believe that you're here for Christ's kingdom and it's the conviction of your heart, then it's going to drive everything that you do. And if Christ's kingdom is a central priority of your life, then the question that you will ask when an opportunity is presented to you about serving Jesus won't be, how uncomfortable will this be for me? How much is this going to, how scary will this be? How different will this be? How much will it cost me? Is this going to shake my security? Those are not going to be the questions that we're going to be asking. Even if we don't verbalize those things, we often think them, right? And we don't serve Jesus because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We want to be about our security. We simply want to be status quo. 
That's not the way of the kingdom, brethren. There aren't radical Christians who are sold out for Jesus and then there are Christians. No, biblical Christianity is radical Christianity. Amen? It's all about Jesus and His kingdom. That's just normal. Normal Christianity that we're talking about here. Not some other brand of elitist kind of Christianity. This is normal. No, if you're about Christ and His kingdom, the, the question that you were, you're going to ask is this, where do I sign up? Where do I sign up? If Jesus gave His life for me, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14? He said that Christ died for all so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ who died and rose on our behalf. Christ is our life. He's the center and the circumference of everything, brethren. All revolves around the exalted Christ. All revolves around Him. We're here for Him and for His kingdom, brethren. Be convinced that you're here for this purpose. And... That, per, that this purpose is far bigger than you and I. It's absolutely worth our sacrifice. Amen? It's absolutely worth our sacrifice. I can tell you, brethren, walking with the Lord for 30 years, that my Christian walk has never really been easy. There have been seasons of life where things have been a little calmer. But I can tell you this, through all of the trials, through all of the difficulties, through all of the tumultuous moments of life, it has been worth it every second to serve Christ. Guaranteed. He's worth it. Amen? He's worth it. Are you convinced that you're here for the purpose of Christ and His kingdom? Now, the problem more often than not for many of us is not that we don't know these things, that we have work to do. The problem, I think, is that we are not motivated and, and moved enough to fulfill our purpose. What do we do? We look at society or the world. The sin, the sin problem seems too great, we think, to ourselves. This problem is, is magnanimous. Wickedness is way too rampant. The world, the flesh, and the devil are deadly enemies. There's no way to overcome all this. The enemies are too great. We think those kinds of things to ourselves. Or for some of us, we are way too distracted by the world. We love the stuff of the world. The world is very attractive for us or to us. We're too distracted with the stuff of life. These and many other things are deterrence to fulfilling our purpose. Things that keep us away from fulfilling Christ's call for our lives. But above all, I really believe that the greatest hindrance that we have is that we have a very small Jesus. Not that Jesus is small, as we're going to see, but our view of Christ is very small. Our core problem, brethren, when you begin to dissect really the issue and expose our hearts, is this, we don't see Jesus for who He is, and thus we're not driven by conviction to want to be about His kingdom. That's the problem. That's the problem. And so let put, let's put it this way as we look at the second conviction. We need to be compelled by a captivating Christ. We need to be compelled by a captivating Christ. Listen to me. The more that you and I are captivated and enraptured by the beauty of Christ, the more that we're going to be compelled and catapulted to fulfill His mission here in this world. 
I know of no greater, greater fuel to fulfilling my mission and your mission than to heighten our view of Christ and who He is as the ascended, exalted, returning, reigning Christ in the future. Amen? So great. You won't be compelled or moved to invest yourself into the kingdom, brethren, if you're not captivated by the King. Very simple, isn't it? Jesus knew this, that if His followers were going to continue His mission to reach a wicked and perverse world, they needed a greater vision of of Christ. And so, He stuck around for a while after His resurrection to make sure that His followers were solidified in their beliefs about Him, in particular, His resurrection, if they were going to proclaim the Gospel to a hostile people. Look at this in verse 3. To these, the apostles... He also presented Himself alive after His suffering. And mark this, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? After His suffering and before His ascension, for 40 days, intermittently really is the sense here, Jesus was physically, visibly present among His disciples and He was continually teaching them and centering their thoughts on the highest priority for them upon His ascension and that was to be His kingdom. They had seen Him model this. A man, the God-man, who in His incarnation was all about the kingdom of God. Now why? Why stick around for 40 days in addition to three and a half years? I mean, he had already been with them for three and a half years, teaching with all authority, doing all kinds of great miracles, which bore witness to who he said he was and authenticated the fact that he was indeed the God-man. Wasn't that sufficient? Three and a half years at, at Christ's seminary, the best seminary experience you could ever have, right? Three and a half years amongst Visibly, the physical, visible Christ, the God-man. Wow! But why more time? Why more? Well, I think we get the answer here in verse 3 where it says, if you will note, that He was amongst them by many convincing proofs. You see that? Interesting word, translated proofs in the New American Standard. It has the idea of, of convincing someone in a decisive manner so as to compel to action. Get that? He was amongst them, convincing them in a decisive manner so as to compel them to action. Convincing proofs. In other words, his 40 days of intermittent investment into them had the function, brethren, of solidifying their convictions concerning who he is and what he came to do and what they needed to go do in the light of that. Boy, I'm personally floored by this right here. This passage has always gripped my heart whenever I'm discouraged or whenever I even imperceptibly have just wanted to give up and throw in the towel over the years. Right here, I come back to this. They needed to be convinced that He had truly risen bodily, conquering sin and death if they were going to be compelled to action in the face, brethren, of the fiercest of opposition as you see the the book of Acts unfolding, right? And so don't miss this. They had an awesome opportunity to see the risen Lord in a physical, visible, resurrected body. They ate with Him, and they talked with Him, and they touched Him, and they were amongst each other and with Christ. These were common, uneducated people by and large. 
They were weak, not skilled in speech, not known for prestige or outwardly impressive. But listen to me, one thing that they had going for them is that these people were enraptured by Jesus, the Lord of his church. And thus, in the book of Acts, you see them, boom, they're catapulted into society in the midst of the fiercest of opposition and hostility proclaiming Jesus. That's what they had going for them. No matter the threat or the opposition. We see this in Acts chapter 4, uh, the, the, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and following. That after uh, a lame beggar is, is healed, they stand before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, many of whom had put Jesus on the cross or were responsible for having done that. Fierce Sanhedrin. They stand before the Sanhedrin and essentially they say, let it be known to you that it's because of Jesus that this miracle has happened. They knew what was at stake. What motivated them to do that? If we were to stand before the authorities of the land forbidding us to proclaim Christ, what would motivate us to say, come what may come, bring it on. We're going to proclaim Christ and Him crucified no matter what. What drives that? What fuels that? A greater vision of Christ, brethren. The fact that we, could be, we must be enraptured by Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22, they are forbidden to preach Christ. And Peter says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or heard. He says, you guys be the judge whether we should listen to you or we should listen to God. You know what? We're going to listen to God. We're not going to cease to preach Christ. Come what may come. Wow. No matter the threat or the opposition, these Christians were going to stand firm. Why? Because of their conviction in a compelling Christ. They were so moved by Him. I wonder how many of us would say this about ourselves. That we are so gripped by the glory of Christ and by our precious Savior and what He has done for us and going to the cross and dying for our sins so that we are compelled, brethren, to fulfill His mission even if it would come to the point in our country where our lives would be on the line. You would say, you know what? That's a graduation, baby. You kill me, I graduate into eternity into the presence of Christ. How many of us would have that kind of an attitude? I wonder how many of us would say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, he says, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what Paul said. Or 1 Corinthians 9.23, I do all things, he says, for the sake of the gospel. How could Paul say this? Was he some kind of elitist, super-Christian? He had a greater dose of the Spirit than we do? No. He was a man saved by grace, just like us, brethren. He was a man, however, captivated by the compelling Christ. He had such a lofty view of Jesus that he was willing to put his life on the line, knowing where he was going anyway. And so I submit to you that this is the greatest need of every single one of us. It's that we behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, brethren, all the more. Because if we're not passionate about Jesus' mission, hear me, then it's because you are not passionate about Christ himself. If you're not passionate about the mission of Christ, the Great Commission, it's because you're not passionate about Christ himself. But when we behold the beauty of Christ, it will be the conviction of our lives to be about his kingdom and about the King. And the power of the Spirit by the grace of God, we will want to make sure that we center our lives on what he wants from us. You say, but I have never seen 
the risen Jesus face to face in physical form. That's true. We haven't, at least us in the 20th century, right? 21st century. That's true. But listen, if you know Christ, then you have come into a personal, intimate relationship with Him, right? You have affections for Him. You have a genuine love for Him, even though you haven't physically, visibly seen Him. And if any of you have, let's talk afterward, okay? Or talk to one of the elders, because you haven't. Not in that sense, in the sense of these apostles. Isn't this what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-8 through eight, uh, say? And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so your love and your affection and your faith and your joy in Christ is profound evidence, brother and sister, that you have seen Christ with spiritual eyes. With spiritual eyes. Furthermore, Christ primarily reveals Himself on the pages of Scripture, doesn't He? Self-revelation. See, we don't study the Bible because it is some mystical book of dead tradition. We study the Bible because it reveals a beautiful person. It's in the Scripture that we behold the beauty of Christ. It's in God's Word that we do this. But that's precisely where the problem lies. As we said before, we are not accustomed in our fast-paced, media-saturated culture, brethren, to meditate on God's Word and behold the glory and the beauty of Christ. Long gone are the days. It's rare for many of us to pause and to seek solitude and silence in the presence of God. That's not a discipline that we practice, many of us, as we should One writer has made the observation about our 20th century culture. He writes this, quote, We seldom hear of people talk today about beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus. We seldom hear messages on meditation, and too seldom do we practice this holy art ourselves. People seem to have a horror of being alone for 10 minutes and appear almost incapable of closing the closet door, as our Lord admonished us in the Sermon on the Mount to do, and incapable of thinking quietly without interruption on the infinite glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Boy, that's so true, even in my counseling over the years. I've fallen into that danger, and many people that I've counseled. We sell ourselves short, brethren, when we don't ponder deeply on the Scriptures, and yet this is the way to heighten our view of Christ, right? The great 17th century theologian, John Owen, one of my favorite Puritan writers, wrote that knowing and beholding Christ is the greatest privilege that on this side of heaven we can be partakers of. He adds, there are such revelations of the person and the glory of Christ treasured up in the Scriptures from the beginning until the end of it as may exercise the faith and contemplation of believers in this world and shall never during this life be fully discovered or understood. In other words, the wonder of Christ in Scripture is infinite. It is inexhaustible, he says. It's an infinite reservoir. He adds, this is the glory of the Scriptures, that it is the greatest, yeah, the only outward means of representing unto us the glory of Christ, end quote. That's good stuff, isn't it? The Scripture reveals to us the majesty of Christ, His awesomeness, His greatness, the wonder of our Savior. 
This is why in Luke 24, 27, it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, explained to those two disciples on the road to Damascus the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures, he said, it says there. Jesus is the great meta-narrative of scripture. He's the overarching theme of scripture. And the father, by the way, is pleased that his son is exalted at this stage of redemptive history to his glory in the power of the spirit. Did you hear that? God the Father, at this stage of redemptive history, God the Father is glorified when His Son is exalted, made much of in the power of the Spirit by the guidance of God's Holy Word through His people. That's a Trinitarian missional statement for us, right? Christ. Ultimately, all Scripture points to the Lord Jesus, to our Redeemer, brethren. We must heighten our view of Him through the pages of God's Holy Word. I plead with us that we would do that. And so if we're going to continue the work of Christ on earth, we need to be fueled by our commitment to certain core unwavering convictions. There are others, and we're going to talk about others in this series, but we must be convinced of our glorious purpose, which is centered on investing ourselves into the kingdom of God here on earth. And secondly, we must be compelled by a captivating Christ. Amen? This is at the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 58, which is in the context of Paul asserting there in 1 Corinthians 15, the conviction, his conviction, in the power of the Spirit of Jesus' resurrection. And in the light of that, in our subsequent resurrection as believers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And all God's people said what? Amen. I have found that, brethren. Jesus is worth it. He's worth my every single minute in the light of what He did for me. I hope that that's the cry of your heart and that that's your prayer, even as you respond in obedience to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, drive these truths into our hearts that we would be people of heartfelt convictions, fueled to continue the mission that You have given us to accomplish here in this world, Father. Not only individually, but collectively. Help us to be people who are, Lord, mobilizing in the biblical sense, in whatever context you have us, whatever hubs we find ourselves in. Help us to, Lord, be about um, looking for evidences of your grace, Lord, through opportunities that you may give us. Help us to be sensitive to those divine appointments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.